scripture reading this morning is John chapter 20, as we read together verses 10 through 18. And we're coming to what is one of the great resurrection narratives. You'll find it on page 1686 of the Church Bible, page 1686. In the first part of the chapter, and you need to know this by way of a context, Mary Magdalene, along with some of the other ladies, have gone to the tomb, and they cannot find the body of Jesus. And so they go back and report to the disciples. And Peter and John immediately get up, and they run to the tomb to find out what is going on. And when they get there, it is exactly as the ladies have said. And so the ladies return with them eventually. And so we break into the chapter at verse 10. The disciples at that point, realizing there is nobody, they've been around for some time, they're not quite sure what to do, and then they head back home, and this is what's going on. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Women, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Women, he said, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Now let me ask you this morning as we begin our study, is there one thing you really enjoy about the Easter weekend? One thing that stands head and shoulders above everything else? Is it having time with family and friends later today, perhaps over lunch or dinner? Or is it just the fact it's a holiday weekend, you're off tomorrow, you're planning to go to the movies or some shopping or hiking, but you're enjoying this downtime. Is there one thing? Well, we discovered at the 8 o'clock service and the 9.30 service what moms and dads and grandchildren, or excuse me, moms, dads and grandparents love more than anything else. So boys and girls, please hear what I'm about to tell you. If later today your parents and your grandparents send you on an egg hunt in all your finest Easter outfit, 
the first thing you do is to take off the silver paper, hold it in your hand, count to ten, and then lick it off your fingers and wipe your hands on your new Easter clothes. Parents and grandparents really love that. That is the best part of any Easter, so please feel free to do that. It is just so much fun. Grandparents, you're welcome. Parents, no need to thank us. You're most welcome. Now, apart from all the fun of an Easter weekend, let me probe a little further. Is there a particular Easter story that is your favorite? One that you really can enter into and feel and sense, yeah, that would be me. I would love to have been there and experienced that. And maybe for you it's Peter leader of the apostolic band who is sitting there along with John who is the youngest of the disciples and Mary Magdalene comes back in and says someone has taken the body of Jesus and you look at John and you think well this is impossible there was a seal on the door there was a Roman guard Mary you've, you've visited the wrong tomb Let's go and see. And so John and Peter run. John, being the younger, gets there before Peter. Peter arrives, a little out of breath. And then he looks inside. And John's gospel tells us this. He saw and believed. And that word saw in John's gospel is specific to that passage. In other words, it's not a common word. It means there was a breakthrough. He understood. At last, he grasped the importance of what's going on. The word is plepo. It is so different. He sees and he believes. Or maybe for you, your favorite Easter story is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's certainly one of my favorites. And Luke records it in the second part of his gospel in Luke 24. When two disciples that Easter Sunday morning are walking away from Jerusalem, going to the village of Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're walking and talking. Cleopas is one of the disciples. We don't know the name of the other. And Jesus himself walks along beside them. And the passage tells us this, but they did not recognize him. And it was only later that evening when they sat down for supper together that he takes bread and he breaks it. And at that point, they understood. That's certainly towards the top of my list. Maybe for you, it's Thomas. You've somehow always been attracted to Thomas. Thomas, with all of his skepticism, you can imagine him just folding his arms and being grumpy and frowning and saying, I will not believe unless I see the holes in those hands and the wound in his side. I will not believe. Does that describe your favorite Easter story? Well, in this story, Mary Magdalene is about to discover 
what she has been wrestling with all weekend. We don't know much about Mary, although we know she was born and raised in the town of Magdala, close to Capernaum. If you remember your map of the ancient Palestine as it was then, you have up here in the north, Jerusalem's down here, 60 miles to the north is the Sea of Galilee, it looks a little like that actually, and over in the corner is Capernaum, and next to it is Magdala. And Mary has been there all weekend with the disciples. She was there on what we call Monday, Monday Thursday, Thursday evening. She was right there when word started to break that Jesus had been arrested. And she thinks, no, this can't be. This, this, this is a mistake. There's, there's something wrong. And even if he has been arrested, surely when he goes to court, no one is going to believe any of that. That simply can't be. It's, it's Jesus. I was there when he fed 5,000 I watched the gospel in his teaching impact and transform lives. I saw him bringing people back from the dead. He's guilty of nothing. Surely, surely there's a mistake. And you can imagine that initial optimism changing and becoming more serious as the night goes on. And then as Pilate sends him to Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, and then the Sanhedrin sent him back to Pilate, and Pilate sentenced him to death. And on the Friday, Mary is gathered there with the other ladies, having watched him beaten and mocked and humiliated through the streets of Jerusalem, and he ends up being crucified. Can you imagine what was going on in the mind of Mary? The other thing we know about Mary is this, not just she was born in Magdala, but she was possessed by a demon. Now, thankfully, you don't read that too often in the Gospels. And it was very real for Mary. Can you imagine what that is like? The self-loathing, the hatred, the bitterness, the lack of peace. Unable to sleep. Demonic possession is off the charts in terms of anything we can imagine. And then she meets Jesus. And he reaches out and he touches her. And for the first time in her adult life, she's restored and made new. And transform and has peace. And no wonder she follows him around, listening to his teaching, watching the miracles. She has experienced it for herself, and she's seen it happen to hundreds and thousands of others. And it was to end on a cross. Really? Is that it? And you know in your mind that all of the trauma of the last 72 hours, all of the questions, the what-ifs 
and the whys. And the surely this can be happening. You know that sometime late on Saturday morning, when the disciples get up, get on with their day, the big questions begin to enter into their minds. Not simply the questions of, wasn't that a dreadful trial the night before? Wasn't that a mockery of justice? The big question was coming. And the big question was this. How could God possibly let this happen? What on earth was he doing? Didn't Jesus talk to us about the love of his Father? Do you remember those nights when we sat down at the campfire at the side of the Sea of Galilee and we would talk into the early hours of the morning and he talked about the love and the grace and the transformation of the love of God? Don't you remember answered prayers? Don't you remember those intimate moments? And now, what is he doing? How could it end like this? What kind of God is that? They may never have said it like that. But you know, in the back of their minds, they'd be asking those questions, struggling and wrestling with all that is going on. Talk about perplexed, distraught. Talk about having your back against the wall. What was God doing? And as the passage begins to unfold, there's no easy answers for Mary. She goes to the tomb. The body is gone. More questions. Who would steal the body of Jesus? Why would they do that? Have they no sense of the pain and grief that it is causing? What is going on? And then to go back to the others and say, he's not there. And then they rush back again and eventually the ladies get there. He's not there. And Peter and John, after a while, leave. And Mary is left on her own. And just to be on the safe side, just to be sure, what does she do? She bends down and looks in, and there's two angels. And you can imagine her kind of thinking, clearly I've come from the light into the dark, and I, I can't be seeing this. And one of them says to her, woman, why are you crying? What kind of question is that? Not, who are you looking for? Can we help? Why are you crying? Because the angels know what Mary doesn't know. They know what's happened. Mary's still in the dark. She doesn't understand what's going on. She's still full of questions, grieving, weeping. Her heart is broken. And if you have ever found yourself in that position where you are struggling and the days you are living through are so challenging, you do not know where to turn next. 
if you have been disappointed and you've prayed and you've wrestled with God and your back is against the wall and you don't know where to go next and he is not answering your prayers, you may well be asking the question, what on earth are you doing? I thought you loved me. I thought we had a relationship. I trusted you and now this? What is going on here? What are you doing? In the Old Testament book of the Psalms, there is a wonderful verse from Psalm 30 verse 5 and it reads like this. Weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And Mary was about to discover exactly what God was doing. And standing right next to Mary was the risen Christ. And she did not recognize him. Her answer to her prayers was right there. The risen Christ was right there. He was about to wipe out all of the pain, all of the questions, all of the grief, all of the tears of the last three days. And she did not recognize her answer was right there. Right there. A number of years ago, I remember a colleague teaching on this passage. And this is what he said. He said, it is in the quiet crucible of your personal, private sufferings that your noblest dreams and fervent prayers are born. And God's greatest gifts are given in compensation for what you as his child have been through. And on that Easter Sunday morning, Mary was about to realize and recognize the truth of that for herself. Weeping may remain for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Why does Mary think he's a gardener? A garden tomb? That's an obvious connection. Earlier in John's Gospel, in John chapter 15, in the upper room, Jesus looks at the disciples and says this, My father is a gardener. And here we are on Easter Sunday morning. A gardener is someone who nourishes and feeds and brings life out of that which was dead. That's what's going on here. But Mary hasn't understood it. She hasn't grasped the significance of it yet. And how does Jesus respond to her? One word. Mary. That's it. <laughs> he calls her by the name her parents would have used when she was a wee girl. And he speaks to her in Aramaic, hence she responds, Rabboni, and reaches out and grabs him. And at that point, she understands. 
And the scriptures teach us this. Again and again and again and again, all the way back to Genesis, all the way through to the end of Revelation, that the cross was at the center of the purposes and plans of God for all humanity. It wasn't what on earth is God doing. It was exactly what God was doing. And he was bringing forgiveness and transformation and healing and wholeness and renewal. The scriptures tell us this, that he died for our sins wasn't an accident, wasn't happenstance. In fact, it says more than that. And we heard it from Shelton at the beginning of his prayer. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. It wasn't that he was simply blamed. It wasn't simply that all of humanity's sin was laid upon him. He became sin for us. And on the third day, on Easter Sunday morning, raised to life again. That's what was going on. And Mary grasped it and she understood. And the love and grace of God Almighty overwhelmed her once more. And no wonder she was in tears again. And of course, Jesus says to her, go back, tell my brothers, tell the other disciples what is happening, all that you have seen. And you can imagine how that went. I suspect when she went back to them and they took one look at her, they knew if something was different. It had changed. And here was Mary, transformed by the grace of God from the inside out. Her hope restored, renewed, refreshed. And let me leave you this morning with a challenge. And it's this. You may be here this morning saying, Richard, I don't come to church that often. I only come maybe four or five times a year, Christmas and of course Easter. And for me, the Easter story was always about a new beginning after a disaster. For me, it was always a metaphor of every cloud has a silver lining. It was symbolic of good coming out of bad Well, if that describes you, allow me to say this. And what I'm about to say will feel strident and strong and it's difficult to take. But let me say it with all of the gentleness that I can. Let us not, on Easter Sunday morning, mock the grace of God with metaphor. It is not a metaphor. It is not a parable. It's not symbolic. A metaphor doesn't say to Thomas, put your finger in the holes in my hands. Look at the wound in my side. A parable doesn't say, 
Mary. It was real then. It is real today. Millions across the world will be at church this morning rejoicing in the reality of the resurrection. And here is my challenge. Before you go to sleep tonight, open up this passage once again. Read it for yourself. Prayerfully say, Lord God Almighty, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for not trusting you. Change me, transform me, renew me. For today, this Easter Sunday, I am putting my hope and trust in you and in you alone. Weeping may endure for an evening, but joy comes in the morning. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture and the challenge it has been to us this morning. Enable us, please, by your transforming grace, to leave this morning rejoicing in your love, delighting in your goodness to us, and enable us, please, each one of us, to know the reality and the thrill of Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.